Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I hope my voice is finally at an acceptable level. As some of you may have heard, I picked up a little bug at the Sundance Film Festival. Wouldn't you know it? The only time I decide to participate in the film industrial complex, look what I get. I was in Utah anyway, doing a bit of skiing with my friend Katel. And we decided to attend a screening because it was during Sundance. We weren't there for Sundance, but Sundance was going on nearby to where we were. And so we went to a screening. I won't name the film. But the screening was in a low-ceilinged, overcrowded, unventilated room. And I thought, hmm. And also the film was about three hours long. Now, my friend Katel didn't come down with the COVID, but I did. So maybe it wasn't from there. We'll never know. Anyway, it's kept me off the mic for a couple of weeks because I've had an occasion to hear other podcasters who podcast with a cold or with a a voice that sounds sick, and I, I find it really hard to listen to, so I decided not to inflict that upon you. Hopefully this isn't too bad. I'm fully now recovered and have a little residual feeling, but not too much. So anyway, I'm here today to finally do an episode about a film I originally was going to do an episode about, then I screened the film and decided I wasn't going to do an episode about it, and now I'm back and doing an episode about it, and of course that film is The Long Good Friday, Bob Hoskins, Helen Mirren, this iconic theme by Francis Monkman. Like much about this movie, this theme has grown on me. Initially, I was, I don't know, I was irritated by it. It just didn't quite work for me, but much like the film, the charms of this theme have grown on me in the intervening weeks that I had to reconsider the film, which I have done. After I'd screened the film, I was motivated to post the following on Instagram. I'll read it to you for those of you who may not know the Instagram account. If you don't, please follow me at Crew. Instagram is the social media spiritual home of the podcast. So I made a funny graphic. I said, I regret to inform you. I see a picture of Bob Hoskins and his sunglasses shipping, shipping, sipping a glass of champagne. I regret to inform you that based on your votes, I rewatched The Long Good Friday for the podcast, but it turns out that despite an abundance of period style and ironic appreciation for various Cockney non-actors and unironic appreciation for Helen Mirren, it's a pretty bad film that just doesn't hold up. I will thusly be moving down the list to rewatch The Third Man. Now, that's in reference to the fact that I put out a vote because I got some data about the podcast performance. And it turns out that a significant number of my downloads come from the United Kingdom. I thought, let me me do something for those people who appreciate this podcast across the pond. Because if you know anything, appreciation for Yanks is not a given. So it's, it's almost doubly meaningful to have any listeners in the UK who think this is worthwhile, unless they're sort of comedically hate listening. But hey, a download's a download. So anyway, I put out a few films 
and I said, you know, please vote. And of course, the number one vote getter, unsurprisingly, was the Long Good Friday. The number two vote getter was the third man, which I'm going to be doing next week on the podcast. So I rewatched the Long Good Friday. And it is an iconic British film. It's an iconic film of its period, regardless of country of origin. In terms of British films, it's been listed as high as number 15 on a critic's list of the 100 greatest British films. It's the film that made Bob Hoskins a star. It's somewhat representative of the George Harrison-funded-slash-founded Handmade Films story, but not in the way that a film like With Nail and I was. That's a film we've done recently here on the podcast. In this case, the film had a somewhat tortured development process. It was originally commissioned under film agreements, but intended by the British film impresario Lord Lou Grade, a character of the highest order. It was originally intended by his organization ITC and its subsidiary Black Lion Films for air on television, which we have to remember at this time in 1980 in Britain, it's a little different than saying it's going to air on our television. The rules are different. What you can air is a little bit different. But basically, he had this channel, which still exists. ITV is still a production entity to this day. <clears throat> but when he screened the film, when Lord Grade himself apparently screened the finished film, he thought that it was sympathetic to the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. <clears throat> That's a part of the story of The Long Good Friday, where Bob Hoskins, as the gangster Harold Shand, is being subjected to sequential attacks, and he, like we, viewing this occurring to him, have no idea what's going on uh, until the very end of the film. So after the finished film was completed, there was a, a sequence of events that occurred that are kind of comical and they become a bit of film history. The first of which is that the film's director, John McKenzie, nicknamed Frenzy McKenzie for his fast shooting style, got word that the film was going to be aired on television. It was not going to be aired in cinemas. And this was somewhat news, I guess, to director McKenzie. And the second thing that he got word of was that the voice of Bob Hoskins was going to be dubbed by a different actor who had a Midlands accent. Now, to American viewers, this won't really mean anything, but Hoskins, of course, speaking in the film in this East End of London Cockney accent, being replaced by a Midlands-voiced actor is, a vi is all sorts of violations of things going on there. I mean, for one, it completely undercuts what the film is ostensibly about, who it's about. But also for Bob Hoskins, for whom this film would put him on the map in a major way as a movie star, 
as several notable British actors who joined the threatened legal case that Hoskins had the right to bring under his film contract, which said that they did not have the right to dub or remove his voice without his agreement, you know, people people made the point that to remove an actor's voice is to is to is to literally steal his voice to take his or her personality from the finished film. And so, of course, the people involved uh, on the other side of this disagreement would have looked pretty terrible given the class issues always undercurrenting everything that goes on in the United Kingdom or the disunited kingdom. If you had a bunch of rich toffs who were seen to be electing to remove Bob Hoskins' East End of London Cockney accent from the finished film, they would find themselves pretty quickly in an indefensible public position. And so as Hoskins tells it, the next thing that happened was that he ran into Monty Python's Eric Idle at a party. And at the time, uh, the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian, had been a huge hit for this new, upstart, somewhat hip film company called Handmade Films. And I direct you back to my With Nail and I episode for more about Handmade Films and about some of the business challenges which befell Handmade and some of the organizational challenges which are familiar to any student of the Beatles' business efforts, either together or individually. But essentially what occurred was Bob in this making of documentary, which I'll link to in the podcast notes, says that he said to Eric, oh, cool, you must have made a a pile of money from Life of Brian. Would you like to buy a film? Because the ultimate settlement for the issue of we're going to air it on TV, it's not going to be a film release, and we're going to replace Bob's voice, was that the the, the funders of the film, Lou Grades, ITC, and subsidiary Blackline Films, said to the filmmakers, well, you can buy it back from us if you want. Of course, they didn't have the funds to do that. So they were looking for someone who did. And guess who did? George Harrison. He's got plenty of funds. So Bob arranged a screening, which I believe George Harrison did not attend critically. But perhaps the other principles of handmade films were there. They screened the film and they purchased it for 200,000 pounds less than the film originally cost. I think it cost just under a million pounds. And so Handmade purchased the film, kept Bob's voice, released it, and the rest is history. Now, I did read a little bit that said that when George Harrison did finally see the film, he said that, allegedly, had he known how violent it was, he would never have agreed to purchase it. So when I say that it's sort of representative of Handmade films at the time, I mean that this sort of slapdash, unfocused, seat-of-your-pants approach could turn out unexpected masterpieces like With Nail or I, or iconic, but unintentionally iconic films, I would say, like The Long Good Friday. Because I don't think anyone thought when they were making The Long Good Friday at a relatively low budget with relative unknowns that it would continue to be this iconic British film all of these years later, which it undoubtedly is. I would never take that away from the film. So 
for whatever problems we might elucidate in the Long Good Friday, and I will elucidate a number of them as we go through this episode, it still remains as a film in the very select company of the highest rated handmade films, films. And the others would be With Nail and I, Monty Python's The Life of Brian, Mona Lisa, which also stars Bob Hoskins, I think in an Academy Award-nominated performance, and the Jonathan Wax film Pow Wow Highway, which you probably haven't heard of. I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's a film that has something of the American Native American experience in it in a very early time frame for that sort of subject matter appearing, I wouldn't say in a Hollywood film, but in a feature film. So The Long Good Friday is one of those most iconic of handmade films, and it has all of the other credits and accolades that I accolades that I that I mentioned earlier. The film was originally titled The Paddy Factor, which luckily either Mackenzie or some of the other people involved in the production of the film realized gives away the entire plot because one of the things that's very cool about this, if somewhat confusing perhaps for first-time viewers is I do like how the film unfolds if not from the perspective of Harold Shand, the gangster character portrayed by Bob Hoskins, it unfolds from events which occur on this particular Good Friday in question in such a manner that the audience doesn't know any more about what's happening than Harold does, with one caveat, and a pretty important one, I will say. And that caveat is, One of Harold's right-hand henchmen, there are two, the brilliantly portrayed Razors, and Jeff. And Jeff is someone that strikes me as an American as kind of a poor man's, a poor man's Steve McQueen, let's say. He's snapping this gum, he's wearing turtlenecks and sort of uh, flashy suits, He's supposed to be too, too cool for school, but I mean, he sort of comes across like a puffed up boy to me. And not having seen this film for quite a while, it was all the more incredibly apparent to me from the get-go that clearly Jeff was involved in all of the things that befall Harold throughout the film. And this great mystery that's supposed to be a great mystery is really not one if you're if you've watched too many movies. And that's probably... To be fair, uh, something I'm, I would be guilty of. Once you watch too many movies, you it's very hard to miss the cues that filmmakers put in with a glance or a bobbled line or any of the things that they'll do to indicate that this is an untrustworthy character. And the activities of Jeff throughout the film provide some comedy and also some great violence and uh, some of the surprising elements of The Long Good Friday are the way in which shocking violence breaks out from what otherwise can be a pretty rollicking, enjoyable, and comic film. Like, it's funny. The lines are funny. It's The characterizations can be funny, and I think intentionally so. It has cheek and attitude. So when I posted that Instagram post, I got a lot of pushback from what I discern to be largely... British males in their 50s and 60s, all of whom offered up full-throated defenses of the film without really realizing that they were also sort of making my point for me. A lot of people say things like, I love it, and I think it's a real British classic. Agreed. 
controversial viewpoint that many of us Brits might challenge. Uh, totally agreed. You couldn't be more wrong. And this displays an obvious lack of London history and an undoubted predilection towards ponciness. The score, performances, locations, and prescience about what was about to happen in the area all make this a stone-cold classic. Aside from the predilection towards ponciness, which I assume charitably is somewhat of a reference to the character Errol the Ponce. That's a character, that's how the character is referred to. I'm not sure if this person is trying to cast aspersions on me by essentially making a gay joke as a means of disparaging my take on the film. Ironically, if this person was doing that, they would be in character with The Long Good Friday, one of the big flaws of which is this very dated and frankly kind of embarrassing attitude towards homosexuality, which however truthful it may or may not be to the milieu that it's set in in the time, still comes across as guilty of some of the more embarrassing tropes in film history in terms of how gay people and gay men specifically are treated in films. And so while I'm not gay myself, I'm aware that this is a thing in cinema, and I'll be talking about that briefly in a moment as we get to that specific kind of flaw that the film has and and uh, talk about that a little bit. So another comment, not having this, perhaps the greatest British gangster film and seminal. Dating has to be taken into account. Sound and editing, which impacts on pacing. But this is a film and performance from the two leads that I can watch again and again. I agree. Now, oh, here's another good one. The Long Good Friday is a standout movie for two reasons. The forward-thinking narrative of the Docklands redevelopment and Bob Hoskins acting masterclass in the final scene. It's as simple as that. Technology has moved on. We all know that. You either factor that into your judgment or you don't. Those are just a few of the comments that I got. Now, of course, these are all comments I can, uh, from what I can discern from a very specific slice of British male age. And what they're saying is not something that I necessarily disagree with. This is a good example, maybe even a great example, maybe even one of the best examples of a film that it would be an absolute thrill to see in a crowded theater even today. The vibes are incredible in the film. The period details are incredible. The quoted, quotable dialogue is fantastically fun. This would produce a community and collective experience par excellence. If they played this film in New York City, I would 100% go because that's where this film lives in communal viewing and enjoyment. But that's not the same thing as good in quotes. And while there are plenty of wonderful things in this film, and there are plenty of things to celebrate, which I will celebrate, what's not exactly good about the film is, is on display right from the beginning of the film. And ironically, it's also the stuff that would play really well in a crowded theater. And I'm not a snob, and I don't discount those types of film-going experiences because they're totally valid. There may be even more purely valid than a lot of the intellectual exercise type films that we are fed and that can be very, very hard going. Um, 
for example, one of the one of the great things in the film I'm reminded of um, there's a, there's some interesting comparisons to the Third Man, and some of them I think are British comparisons, which even though these films take you know are shot forty years apart or so, there are some continuity issues which I think are interesting. One of them, I was watching the uh, commentary on the Third Man, which Steven Soderbergh does with the screenwriter Scott Frank. And as I mentioned, I'm going to be doing The Third Man on the podcast next week. Soderbergh said a great film should have long passages without any dialogue, that using just images and music to tell parts of the story is the mark of a great director. And I would agree, even though I don't think John McKenzie himself would have said he was a, quote, great director. And one of the things I I do want to mention without disparaging anyone is that for many of the filmmakers, not necessarily the actors, because clearly Hoskins and Helen Mirren would go on to have superlative film careers, in the case of Helen Mirren, still going. But for the director, um, for the cinematographer, for the screenwriter, if you look at their Wikipedia pages, they all contain a variation of the following sentence, perhaps best known for The Long Good Friday. And that's not to disparage that because, hell, doing anything amazing and lasting once is, is worthy of celebration. But I point that out because, unlike, say, The Third Man and a director like Carol Reed, who would make a handful of incredible, iconic, timeless films, you know, that's not what's going on here, and that's okay. We don't have to pretend that something else is going on when what's going on is an enjoyable group experience of a film that has so much period style and attitude as to be imminently watchable and rewatchable. Now, one of the cool things here is that the director, John McKenzie, starts this film almost totally wordlessly for about seven minutes. And during that time, we see the beginnings of the story. But we're not placed anywhere. There is no on-screen signifier of where we are. And this confusion, I think, is part of what I would have to say kind of doesn't work for the film and in the film as you watch it again. I mean, if you just put Ireland on screen, which is where it's ostensibly supposed to be taking place in the beginning scenes, that would clear that up a little bit, but they don't do that. You're shown a house in the countryside, but you're not told where it is. Uh, There are no Irish signifiers. You only learn later on, and the very end of the film, in fact, about what was going on in the beginning. Now, to some degree, again, that's kind of cool. To another degree, it's also sort of clumsy filmmaking and difficult storytelling, but be that as it may. During this seven-minute sequence, we learn a lot. And Mackenzie does a great job illustrating a bunch of these storylines without really explaining them. We see a man who we come to realize is gay and is in a gay bar, hands off a suitcase of money, takes some for himself. There are three men in a country house who then receive the money. And while counting it, they are gunned down from outside of the house by an unseen gunman. And we meet two other men. The man who handed off the suitcase meets, I guess, another man. The, other, the third man, not to quote the third man, but the third man is his driver. So the other two, the man that he meets is another gay man in this gay bar. 
And while the man we've been following with the suitcase is buying cigarettes, the other two prepare to leave. The other two are abducted and left for dead by the side of the road. Now, here is the first indication of what I want to talk about as kind of this troubling realization that we're going to have one of these dated gay equals violent death trope situations in a film. And this is a thing. I was looking around for sort of the most succinct description of this trope. And I came across a excerpt of a doctoral thesis by Anna Marie Malley from Northern Illinois University in 2017. And this kind of sets the stage for what Hollywood was dealing with in different eras and how homosexual storylines are frequently indicated on screen. She writes, quote, Media representation of queer storylines was expressly banned from Hollywood films from 1931 to 1968. This was in accordance with this restriction on sexual perversion in the motion picture production code. Even in this time frame, ambiguously gay characters were not entirely absent from films, most often in the form of effeminate men. Following the end of this restriction, even sympathetic characters engaged in homosexual storylines were met with tragic endings, often death. Now, this is a thing that you can note. <clears throat> a lot has been written about this subject, if you're interested. But suffice it to say that if you watch a lot of movies, eventually you realize that this sort of storyline, a storyline involving a main or usually an ancillary character whose gayness is maybe incidental to the plot, it could even be critical to the plot, but typically it's otherwise kind of a peripheral character. This character, because of their gayness, meets a violent and grisly end as a direct result of being gay. And it's not so much that they're just targeted and attacked, per se. It's that, as in this first gay death in The Long Good Friday, the character is seeking out a sexual liaison, but he doesn't know that the person he's seeking out is actually a plant and is an IRA hitman who is not gay and who seems to welcome the approach in order to stab the gay character to death in a bathhouse. That's a very common kind of, kind of scene. And this is exactly what happens to the men in the parking lot uh, who are also left for dead by the side of the road. And it's also what happens to uh, another character <clears throat> played by the actor Paul Barber, um, who is both gay and black and is shown in bed with a woman, even though he's been introduced as Errol the Ponce, as I referenced earlier. And Hoskins and his crew show up to try to get information from him. And since he doesn't actually know anything, um, they torture him. He's, he's sliced up by Raz the character Razors, who obviously has his name both for his own knife wounds and his ability to inflict them on others. And so while they don't kill this character, he's tortured basically for information that he doesn't have. Now, I know many of you are going to listen to this and be uh, outraged that I would dare to apply some something that you would you would consider to be a modern lens to view a 1980 film, but I don't think that's the case. 
When you have lazy screenwriting, you have lazy screenwriting. And even in 1980, certainly by 1980, you don't really have the excuse that it's impossible to put a gay character on screen in any similar dimensionality to anyone else. Now, I will give the film this. The Colin character, who's the one who's stabbed by Pierce Brosnan in his first role at age 25, the character Colin, played by the actor Paul Freeman, who's stabbed, it, to the film's credit, Bob Hoskins' character, Harold Shand, feels very affectionately towards Colin and has a history with the character going back to high school, going to school together. I think they talk about going to prison together. And it's not presented in a homoerotic way where you're supposed to believe there was some interaction between these two characters. It's really presented believably that that's an aspect of Colin's life that Harold is aware of, but it's not the defining characteristic, which is their friendship. I did my national service with Colin. We did six months in a glass house together. Two kids of 18, six months. He put us right through it, the bastard. <laughs> Souls we played maneuvers. We used to have to hunt this bleeding great wireless about. One winter, snows, blizzards, freezing the bollocks off the ponies. I got lost. In them days, you stayed lost till they nicked you for being AWOL. And Colin on a 24-hour pass. He came out looking for me on his own. It's like he found me, I would have froze to death. Yeah. Now, Colin never hurt a fly. Well, only when it was necessary. It was always clean, wasn't it? Never anything malicious about Colin. Why slice him up? On my grief. Sorry, H. Me and Colin was very close. I've known him since I was at school. So to the film's credit, I think it does provide, at least for the Colin character, more than this trope, which is to be gay in a film means you're going to meet a violent death. However, it doesn't then pay that off. Uh, it, it simply does the stereotypical thing, which is to have the character, because of his gayness, be killed. So these are things when you watch films from different eras that strike modern eyes and ears a little differently. Another example is a film that I also intended to do on the podcast, but it also kind of had this issue, less in a, in a violence way, but in a casual homophobia way. I was watching Slapshot, the Paul Newman vehicle. And Slapshot's a very entertaining film, but I had forgotten that shot throughout this film is this really also, I think, lazy homophobia, which is very jarring to see and hear now. And again, it's a film where you could say, well, it's, it's set in the world of amateur hockey in the 70s, and this is probably the way these uneducated ruffians would have spoken. Maybe, but it doesn't feel like the movie is pitched in that sort of documentary style. 
it sort of feels lazy. It just feels like something that you could do then that would never uh, have raised an issue. But it does, I think, harm the film today when you watch it because it's completely extraneous to what's going on in the film. It doesn't have anything to do with the plot. So it's not as if you could say that the characters speaking that way of, of gay people furthers a narrative or or furthers a truthful representation of the Paul Newman character, who's almost the most guilty of this, of any character in the film, although others are as well. It just doesn't really have a purpose, yet it's kind of omnipresent throughout the banter in the film in a way that becomes a little jarring. So anyway, that's some of what strikes the eyes and the ears a little bit false here as we watch this film again. But those are really two scenes. And once those scenes are over, that part of the film that I'm talking about is also over. It's just something that I noticed when I watched it. But when I watched it again, it wasn't that which really kind of turned me off. It was just that I was watching this and thinking like, yeah, this isn't really good. Like Hoskins is it's an iconic film performance, but it's so over the top. It's not nuanced or subtle, and that's not what the character is. I mean, he's playing this cockney gangster like an animal, really. I mean, he's out of control of his emotions. He's uh, he's just all, <laughs> he's all there, you know? And that is what's great about the performance. But it's not a performance like a De Niro performance of a mobster where you're getting real quality acting yet. Hoskins at this stage is not yet the actor he would become. I think that's the best and fairest way to say it. So he is a star and wow, it's hard to think of other people doing this. But to some of those comments where people say it's the most famous British gangster film, I mean, I'd say Get Carter is a, is a good comparison here. You know, to me, that's the best British gangster film of all time because as a piece of filmmaking, it's far more accomplished and interesting. As a piece of acting, Michael Caine at that time is just a much better actor at that moment than Bob Hoskins was when he made this film. So it doesn't take away from the fact that if you watch this film in a crowded theater, you would stand up and cheer at several of these Bob Hoskins quotable lines. I would too. But again, that's different from being good. That's entertaining, and that's okay. This is a very entertaining film. And Hoskins' performance contains so many hilariously over-the-top moments, just as it contains some great moments, and it contains some great quotable lines. It also contains some funny, embarrassing moments, which we'll get to. So for me, the saving grace of kind of revisiting the film was appreciating Helen Mirren and how great she is. And... One of the things that um, is great about Helen Mirren 
is that when she was presented with this screenplay, uh, the producer says of the character as written by the screenwriter, he says of the character, she was a pea-brained tart, the original character. And that's what Mirren thought. And she thought, why would I want to do this? Again, I agreed to do the film because Barry said he would make my particular role much more interesting. I hate being late for church. And as often happens... Have a nice Easter. Other things were more important at the time. God brought your soul. Really, none of my questions had been addressed. So then I was in a very awkward position because I kind of signed up for something on the understanding that this would be done and it hadn't been done. So basically, the role got developed while we shot. Oh, Christ, Harold, she's always worse when she's going to church. We always felt that Harold Sham was a bit more intelligent, had a bit more taste. There's Bob Hoskins. But he just wants some bird to screw every now and again, you know what I mean? He wanted a life partner. Cheers. And that's who Helen was. Have you organised everything? Yeah, it's coming along. You don't get Helen, someone as intelligent as Helen, who's obviously intelligent, to play a bimbo. Charlie should be landing about now. And so Barry rewrote the role. Maybe we should have gone to the airport to meet him. She was classy and she was educated, and that was her contribution to his world. Well, we played it up, right? You went to school with Princess Anne, played hockey with her, all that. There's lacrosse at Benedon. Hockey's frightfully vulgar. These slightly posh girls, they always rather like to slum it, you know. They, they like to walk on the wild side, some of them. So kudos to Helen Mirren for navigating that tricky on-set reality of having to kind of insist on something being done that she was promised would be done that wasn't done and having to kind of assert herself in this otherwise incredibly male environment to get on screen what was gotten on screen. And I would say that the unquestioned greatest acting performance on screen in The Long Good Friday is by Helen Mirren. At the time, she is the best actor in the film. And she is able to do things with her character that the other characters aren't asked to do, in fairness, but that even for Bob Hoskins, I mean, he does a great job with what he had at the time in terms of his acting ability. But, you know, Mirren turns in a performance that's very slyly different than the typical gangster's mall type character. You know, she is in a lot of ways the logical brains behind the brawn of Harold Shan's operation. And there are many, many great scenes where she is playing a game that's more chess than his checkers. And it's intrinsic to the quality of the storytelling that her character believably embody and do those things, and she does. So she is great. Now, there are some unfortunate other not-so-great character <laughs> actors in this. Uh, one of them is that they're these New York gangsters that Harold Shand is trying to impress throughout the film. And again, the film takes place on one day, and... These gangsters from New York are apparently a part of his plan to criminally redevelop this lucrative piece of waterfront ahead of some Olympics that they plan to have in London. 
And so these New York gangsters are supposed to be the real deal, right? And this kind of British sense of, I think this is one of the reasons why the film resonates so strongly uh, for British people is that it both contains Harold's deference to the Yanks, but it also contains his sense of being less than them until he realizes he's much more than they are. And that's why the film plays so well in Britain, I think, and didn't necessarily play very well when it came to the States because American audiences were probably like, wait a minute, what? We're being outgamed by these Brits? That's part of why I think British people love this film is it's a comeuppance. It's a reassertion of a strength and a system of values that by 1980 was, was changed and was evaporating and was entering into this Thatcherite era where upheaval in British society was going to level off and the backlash to the swinging 60s and some other things was going to be this 10-year-plus steel-fisted reign of Maggie Thatcher. So that's some of the undercurrent here. But anyway, the character of... Uh, one of the one of the American gangsters is played by a pretty interesting figure in Eddie Constantine. And Eddie Constantine was an American, but he's one of those guys who ended up having an entire career in France, even though he didn't really speak French. He was a singer, he was an actor, and he really became famous in kind of B movies in France uh, through the fifties and sixties and seventies, and. So he's kind of this French character. I mean, imagine sort of a Jerry Lewis becoming really famous in France. Eddie Constantine's greatest quality is this face that he has. He's got an incredible face. And it worked for him in French films because they would dub his voice. So the director, John McKenzie, tells some funny stories about, you know, to be honest, Eddie's Eddie's acting career in France consisted of him just mouthing words, and then they would they would be replaced, ironically, given what would happen in this film, uh, with French a French-speaking actor's voice. And so Eddie didn't really have to speak his lines the same way that everyone else did. I just wanted to play you two funny things. On the one hand, you have this great example of what I was just talking about, about this kind of British attitude perhaps the dying flicker of which is encapsulated in this film and so brilliantly articulated by Bob Hoskins, who does a great job with this bit of a rant here. And I want you to listen to this rant thinking about how this would play to an American audience. And that's kind of what's great about the film is it's sort of, it's so Britishly itself, it doesn't really give a shit about the American audience. And you'll hear that, uh, you'll hear that <laughs> uttered in no uncertain terms uh, by the Hoskins character, but listen to the wooden acting that we get here from Eddie Constantine when he's forced to act in his native tongue. It's coming to something when the mafia can't handle a little problem, isn't it? A little problem? Tony, did you hear what he said? A little problem. That's Eddie Constantine. Oh, this is like a bad night in Vietnam. But it's over. I've pulled the plug on him. We do not deal with gangsters, period. This country's a worse risk than Cuba was. Banana Republic. You're a mess. So, Harold. Bon voyage. 
And this right here is such a critical moment because Harold has been put in his place by the almighty Yank mafioso here. And he's about to leave the room. He's about to have taken his drubbing and just slunk off with his tail between his legs. But the reason the film resonates so strongly for Brits, I think, is because of what happens next. I'll tell you something. I'm glad I found out in time just what a partnership with a pair of wankers like you would have been. A sleeping partner's one thing, but you're in a fucking coma. No wonder you've got an energy crisis your side of the water. Fast British. We used to have a bit more vitality, imagination. Touching a Dunkirk spirit, know what I mean? The days when Yanks could come over here and buy up Nelson's column and an Arley Street surgeon and a couple of windmill girls are definitely over. Now look, shut up, you long streak of paralyzed piss. <laughs> what I'm looking for is someone who can contribute to what England has given to the world. Culture. Sophistication, genius, a little bit more than an hot dog. Know what I mean? We're in the common market now. And my new deal is with Europe. I'm going into partnership with a German organization. Yeah, the Krauts. They've got ambition, know-how. And they don't lose their bottle. Look at you. The Mafia. <laughs> I've shit him. I mean, that's probably the one of the most, in addition to the, his beginning speech on the boat, that's probably the most iconic piece of dialogue in the line, in the film. And Hoskins does a great job. And you can see why it's so appealing to British audiences. And you can also probably hear why Eddie Constantine, despite his brilliant mug, which photographed in black and white by Jean-Luc Godard and put into these gangster movies, these gangster B-movies of the 50s and 60s in France. He's so stylish and so effortlessly cool, but he's not a good actor. And it just doesn't work too well. Similarly for the Jeff character, played by Derek Thompson, who a lot of uh, British audiences know best for playing Charlie in a, it sounds like it's the British version of ER, it's a television medical drama series called Casualty. I've never seen it. But apparently it's been on. He was on this for 38 years. He played Charlie from 1986 to 2024. My God. 38 years on a TV show. That has to be an absolute record, right? I can't even think of another scripted television show that's been on for 38 years, aside from a soap opera. So Derek Thompson, I guess, is best known for that. We don't know that here in the States. But he plays Jeff, who is the aforementioned sort of poor man's Steve McQueen. Apologies to Derek Thompson. And this scene between him and Helen Mirren, to me, is so indicative of what ultimately is my problem with the long Good Friday being, quote unquote, good which is that you have a scene with these two characters and she's the boss's wife and he is the boss's right-hand man. He's young and handsome. The boss is this fireplug-like, balding, hairy, uncouth gangster. And Jeff is the epitome of cool. He's got a red Mercedes convertible. He's got these, these suits and, and turtlenecks and, you know, he's hip, he's with it. 
And, and she is gorgeous and witty and intelligent and worldly. And so they're in an elevator together. And you can listen to how this scene plays out. It won't out move here. unless you press the button, you know. Little double entendre. Not moving. It's temperamental. I'll do it. Eyeing each other in the elevator. She's a little attracted to him, too. I hate lifts. Gets really claustrophobic in here with a lot of people. Depends on the people. Now, what's interesting in this scene is she's doing a lot of things at once. She's indicating a lot of things among them. Interest, um, kind of storing away, perhaps for future use, this advance that is clumsily being made on her by someone who should certainly know better, know his place. He's sort of playing it one-dimensionally just because I think that's kind of all he's capable of doing. But on her face in this scene, which as I understand it, had a lot more dialogue from her after he makes this somewhat ludicrous approach which is about to happen. She said, I don't need to do those, those lines. You can, you can take that out. I can do all that with my expressions. And she does. So you're not going to get that part of this, but if you watch the film, you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, to his credit here, he is thinking a lot of things without saying them. He's realizing that they both want this to happen. She's gazing at him somewhat expectantly. I want to lick every inch of you. But that's the line. Saved by the bell. I want to lick every inch of you. I guess that passes for sexy time talk in the UK in 1980. I don't know. But it's kind of ludicrous. And it's one of those things that sort of unfortunately renders the film less than good Although you can imagine people going absolutely wild in some grindhouse showing of this when that scene plays. So that's what I'm saying. I'm putting this film in the context of saying, believe me, if we all saw this together, we would be, I would be jumping up and hooting and hollering too. Let alone Jeff's death scene, which is, <laughs> which is amazing. As for Hoskins, you know, he's a ball of energy, but he's not yet fully in control of his body and his performance. It's, it's definitely an iconic British gangster performance. I would even maybe say it's the second most iconic British gangster performance after Michael Caine as Carter in Get Carter. But Hoskins, as an actor at this point in his life, he's not nuanced or powerful aside from the statement of intent that this presence on screen represents. This is an announcement that this is a new film star who I'm not going to say is totally different from British film stars that came before him, but he's of his era. He's of his time. He is unapologetically himself and has that accent, as you can hear in those excerpts that I played in real life. And he would go on to be capable of great nuance and drama in his acting, a lot of the beginning stages of which are seen in this performance. There's a lot of interesting shifts in attitude and perspective that he has to do here. It's just that some of them are rendered a little bit more cheesily than others. 
I suppose it was me, really. Good old George. The character was me. Everything all right when I was away? Apart from being a gangster. The new casino was gone through. You know, sort of quite emotional, sort of. Um, not always going the straight route. Yeah, he's climbing up the tree of his profession. Yeah, you know, I didn't have to work hard. It was, that was who I was. So, you know, that's the genius of the casting here is that the filmmakers ended up with exactly the right actor in exactly the right role here. Um, and there's a lot of speechifying. I'm not a politician. This is the other most famous speech. I'm a businessman with a sense of history. And I'm also a Londoner. And today is a day of great historical significance for London. Our country's not an island anymore. We're a leading European state. And I believe that this is the decade in which London will become Europe's capital. Having cleared away the outdated, we've got mile after mile and acre after acre of land for our future prosperity. No other city in the world has got right in its centre such an opportunity for profitable progress. So it's important that the right people mastermind the new London. Proven people with nerve, knowledge, and expertise. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why you are all here today. All trusted friends. And why Charlie and Tony are here today our American friends, to endorse the global nature of this venture. Let's hear it, ladies and gentlemen. Hands across the ocean. Now, you can hear from the reaction on the boat to this. It's a bit muted, right? Like, they're not entirely with him. And I think that's part of the film's intent is that Harold Shand is this visionary in the one sense. He sees something that everyone else doesn't really see. And you can see in some of these cutaways, particularly the cutaway to Tony, who is the consigliere of Charlie, the gangster played by Eddie Constantine. Tony's viewing him sort of bemusedly, very pointedly. He's got a, he's got a kind of a shit-eating wry grin on his face as Bob delivers this speech. And so I think the point here is that not every, people don't really even understand what's what he's talking about and what he wants to do. And there are many ironies in this film, which I don't think were necessarily intended at the time, but become richer as time has passed. Because now you look at this and you think, where was Britain in 1980? Where was England in 1980? Where is England now? What was he prophesizing? What would then befall the country, this position that he is articulating where where England is the cultural center of Europe, well, that didn't happen, right? The, the empire has already lost its gleam by this point, and it was about to enter this Thatcherite decade marked by 
brutal labor relations and the miners' strike and the cold austerity of Margaret Thatcher and the answer to the decade that preceded it. And so the the speech is interesting in that context, but it is also interesting in the context that Harold's vision is not really shared by even the close friends that he is presenting it to. One of the scenes that's pretty laughable today is after Harold kills Jeff, spoiler alert, in a brutal bottling scene, which is great. Apparently, originally in the script, it called for Harold to cut off Jeff's head with a sword that's on the wall of his boat. But in, but I guess they realized either they couldn't afford that effect or that it would look too uh, terrible that he would instead smash a whiskey bottle and jab neck, Jeff in the neck with it. And it's brilliant because it's so brutal. And it's one of the things that Hoskins does very well in the film is commit brutality and then sort of become aware of what's happening to him. In fact, in a scene before he kills Jeff, he lashes out at his girlfriend, Helen Mirren's character, and she stands up to him and says, don't treat me like one of your brutes. And he sort of has this incredulous look and he says, what's happening to me? And, and Hoskins does that really, really well. Here's another funny aside I wanted to put in. This is also from the scene that I played earlier where Helen Mirren and Bob are talking on the boat about how they're going to play these American gangsters. The love snobbery. I really feel they've arrived in England. It's the upper classes treating like shit. This this is this is great. Uh, let me just play that again because I, I kind of stepped on it a little bit. I think this is such a funny sentiment here. The Yanks love snobbery. I really feel they've arrived in England. It's the upper classes treating like shit. He now, what's great about that quote is, uh, to my perspective as an American who has spent time in England. Uh, has an upper-class English friend, has spent time being treated like shit by the upper classes in the way that they do. I think I can speak to this from at least the American Yank perspective. I think the Brits think this is true. I think they think that Americans like being treated like shit by the upper classes. Uh, but we don't. We're just usually unaware of it taking place because the British manner of doing that is too subtle and often too uh, clever for us to pick up on, because we're not that bright over here in America, most of us. Here's a funny story I'll tell you as a case in point. As I mentioned, I had a friend, I won't name him because I didn't ask him if I could tell a story, but uh, at one point I went with this friend to a pheasant shoot on an estate in England, in the English countryside. This was in the, this was in the nineties sometime. And my friend was participating in the shoot along with the rest of his family, his father. And we arrive at this shoot and all of my friend's family members are all of a sudden tarted up in this ridiculous plaid wool shooting costumes with like knickers and long socks and boots and flat caps. I mean, all of the stuff that you're just sort of like, the putting on of this stuff just seems so ludicrous from the outside, but this is what they're doing. And I assume that's what I was going to be doing too, that I would be participating in this most ludicrous of upper class activities, which is a pheasant shoot. Now, my favorite book when I was a kid was Danny 
Champion of the World by Roald Dahl, which features a pheasant shoot as the primary plot line. The thwarting of this pheasant shoot along class lines is what the book is ostensibly about, and it's this father-son story, and I've always loved that book. So part of me was kind of like fascinated to experience the other side of this upper-class activity in, in, in seeing a pheasant shoot, which, as I understood it, involved gamekeepers overfeeding these birds so that they could barely fly, and then a group of, I don't, I don't want to say lower class people, but let's just say people of a lower class than the people armed with the shotguns doing the shooting would be sent out into the brush with sticks, and they were beaters. And what they would do is beat these sticks against the ground and against the trees, and the birds that would be hiding slash stuffed to the gills and just sort of like comatose-like doped would, would, would struggle to achieve flight and maybe reach, you know, 50 yards in the air where they would be blasted out of the air by a shotgun <laughs> and plopped down to be retrieved not by the gunman, no, 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 but by trained dogs who would go pick up the birds and then return them to the gamekeeper who would keep track of who shot what, because of course you didn't have to do that as a participant in the pheasant shoot. Heaven forbid you'd have to touch this bird that you just shot, this fattened sluggish bird that you just blew out of the air. Beautiful plumage, gorgeous birds they were. Anyway, I presumed I was going to be donning the flat cap and the knickers and, and the, uh, the whole, you know, rigmarole and accoutrement. Well, in a little bit of what Bob Hoskins was referring to here. My friend's father had other plans. He sent me out with the beaters. So not for me, that side of the class divide. I was appropriately, in their eyes, put onto the other side of the class divide, which is really where I did come from and probably belong in terms of my own class upbringing. So I was given a stick and, and babbled at in to me, an incomprehensible agricultural accent and basically told to go climb through the underbrush and try to scare up some birds, uh, which could then be blasted out of the air. And so my expectation was I'd be on one side of this class divide and then to their great amusement, I was placed on the other side of this class divide. Now, to me, that's always been one of the most representative stories I could give you about how aware they are of their own class divides and how much joyful, childlike enjoyment they get out of placing you in that divide in no uncertain terms. Good afternoon and welcome to Bradley Park. And you join us just as the competitors are running out onto the field on this lovely winter's afternoon with the going firm underfoot and very little sign of rain. And it looks as though we're in for a splendid afternoon sport on this, the 127th Upper Class Twit of the Year show. And there's a big crowd here today to see these prize idiots in action. Vivian Smith by Smith. He's in the Grenadier Guards and he can count up to four. Simon Zink Trumpet Harris. He's an old Etonian and married to a very attractive table lamp. Nigel Incubator Jones. His best friend is a tree and in his spare time he's a stockbroker. Gervais Brook Hamster. He's in the wine trade and his father uses him as a waste paper basket. And finally, Oliver Sinjin Mollusk, another old Etonian. His father was a cabinet minister and his mother won the derby and he's thought by many to be this year's outstanding twit. So 
I think when Hoskins says this line, I think that's a very British thing where they say, oh, the Americans love to be put in their places by the British upper class. It's not that we love it. We just don't usually know that it's happening until after the fact. And so the enjoyment that you may get out of that, out of our supposed desire to be belittled by you Brits, uh, it doesn't really occur because we're usually not really aware of it. We don't operate on that level of subtlety. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the cinematography here. Phil Mayhew was the cinematographer. He's one of the people, if you look him up, his Wikipedia page will say something like, perhaps best known for this film. But there's a lot of great shots in this film. There's the scenes outside Harold's pub that blows up unexpectedly. There's the handheld camera work on Harold's boat, particularly around the scene where Jeff is killed. There's a lot of really stylish, uh, stylish shots. And you can see why Phil Mayhew would go on to shoot a couple of Bond films uh, over the course of his career. He shot Casino Royale in 2006. It's a very stylish Bond film. And he also did Goldeneye, which reunited him with Pierce Brosnan 15 years after this film. So there are a lot of push-ins that I really like that have a nice attitude that are used. And I think he did a great job. Mackenzie, as I mentioned, you know, he's he's also someone who's, this is in the first line of his, uh, his biography. And he did some other films, but I don't, I think it's fair to say he is best known for The Long Good Friday, although he made films from 1970 through 2003 and did some work on television and had some other, some other things to do. But this is what he's most well known for. And Pierce Brosnan, I got to say, pretty cool. You know, it's, it's cool in a movie to see the birth of a movie star, someone who would go on to be a movie star. You have this with Hoskins here, and you also have it with Pierce Brosnan, which is hilarious because he doesn't have any dialogue. And yet he's so, um, he so transcends the kind of throwaway manner uh, of his character. Here's a little bit of the director, John McKenzie, and then Pierce Brosnan talking about him getting and performing the role. I had a great casting lady in this called Simon Reynolds. I said, I want this IRA guy to make a sort of impact. And Simon Reynolds came up with the name of this young actor called uh, Pierce Brosnan. And I said, well, who's he? You know, who's Pierce Brosnan? This was my first film. My agent called me, said, I've got you two days, possibly three days work on a film called The Long Good Friday. Report to work next Tuesday, Morden swimming baths. I hadn't a clue what I was supposed to do. I hadn't read the script. They didn't send me the script. There was no dialogue. <laughs> I didn't have to read for this part. <laughs> John said, you play an IRA hitman. You've got no lines, but you kill people. <laughs> I said, I'm in, great. And he said, this guy's gay, and they're picking him up and you're gonna kill him. That was my job, kill him. And the rest was for whatever I wanted to make it. All right. I picked the guy up and then there's like, you know, give him the old knifey knifey. I got nothing to say really except that was my day at work at Morden Baths and we did a good job killing Paul. Wish all parts were like this, actually. 
And he does a great job. You know, he uses gum chewing to a great degree in this film. And his glances are really something. It's 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 definitely the birth of a movie star. So the this the casting director that John McKenzie mentions, I mean, all all credit to her for recognizing, which is what great casting directors do, right? They recognize who's gonna be a star. And she recognized that in Pierce Brosnan. And he's also used to great effect in the very famous ending scene of the film, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mimit. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's understanding how in 1980, you know, a generation coming of age at that time, a generation of men, let's be specific. This is a film that predominantly is going to have appealed to British men of a certain age, that they could see themselves in this role, in this Bob Hoskins roles. But taking a brief look at like what's going on in Britain in 1980 and in the 1980s, in 1980 alone, you had inflation rising to 21.8% in Britain. Steelworkers and miners went on strike in 1980. It's not the big defining miner strike, that's 84, 85. But this Thatcherism era is 1979 to 1990. Think about how different things were over that span of time. On the front of that, before 1979, you have obviously the cultural revolution that's going on in Britain and around the world. And then you have the hangover for that, so aptly represented by Withnail and I, which is an interesting companion to this because they are at the tail end of the 60s in Withnail and I, and they're wondering what comes next. And it's really the decade before this film is set, which is what comes next for those characters. And I read an interesting piece by a writer named Jason Cowley in The Guardian. It looks like he wrote a book about Britain in the 80s, the decade of the 80s. I thought this said it pretty well. He said, quote, England was being convulsed by a social, cultural, and political counter-revolution. There was violence on the football terraces and on the inner city streets. The forces that drove the punks and new wave bands that followed them were similar to those that motivated the Thatcherite ideologues, a profound desire for consensus-breaking transformation. This was a time of great innovation in pop music as bands inspired by the can-do attitude of the punks and by the art school cool of David Bowie began to experiment with synthesizers and computers, new technologies that would forever change the way music was made. And you can hear that in the score by Francis Monkman, who I've really come to appreciate this score and its use in, in the film, particularly in this, this brilliant closing sequence which is really another interesting parallel to The Third Man, because what happens is after that speech that we just heard before, where Hoskins sort of tells the mafiosa what's what and has the last word and announces his partnership with the Germans and is triumphant. And he's going off to meet Helen Mirren and they're gonna go celebrate the fact that Harold Shan has emerged victorious. Well, he gets into what he thinks is his limousine and in much the same way that happens in The Third Man, it's only too late that he realizes You're old, I was Victoria. he's in the wrong car. And what's brilliant about this sequence is from that point forward, it's totally wordless. And what you have here is the reemergence 
of the great score and the cutaway to Helen Mirren in another car. And then you have this incredible sequence where Pierce Brosnan's assassin character reemerges from the front seat and is pointing a silenced pistol at Harold. And the director, John McKenzie, is actually driving the car, although all we see are his eyes. And again, here's where Pierce Brosnan's charisma comes through because he's, he's got this smug grin on his face. And this long shot of Hoskins' face registers three or four different emotional temperaments during this sequence of music. And every so often it's cut away to Pierce Brosnan who's smugly smiling at him and chewing gum again, by the way. And the way they filmed this was great because uh, they weren't actually together in the car. So John McKenzie was driving the car. There's a cameraman in the back seat where Hoskins was, supposed to be. And Pierce Brosnan was in the passenger seat. And... So Pierce Brosnan is just making those looks and then they swapped it out and then put the camera in the front of the car and then put Hoskins in. And as McKenzie is driving the car, he was telling Bob, all right, at first you're pissed. You're going to get them. You're going to kill them all. Now you're realizing, wait, there's a way out of this. I can bargain my way out of this. Then finally, ultimately you realize it's a lost cause. Your hubris, your ego, you reach too far. You got burned. You're dead. And that's how it ends, which is a great ending. It is a great ending. So I think that uh, I want to say about The Long Good Friday that I came to appropriately appreciate it. I would not say it's a film as artistic and brilliantly acted as something like The Third Man, which I'll do next week. But it certainly is worthy of its attention uh, even as it also deserves a little clear-eyed scrutiny for some of the places where it comes up short. And I hope that you've enjoyed this moment of, um, of revisitation for what you will certainly enjoy <laughs> as The Long Good Friday if you give it a rewatch. So thanks again for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast.